0: like to uh, start this evening's uh, presentation off by welcoming Dr. Helen Ashdown um, who is uh, a university clinical lecturer, a practicing GP and an NIHR doctoral fellow. Uh, She has also been a student on this course so here is one of our success stories. And Helen's going to talk to us today about a project that she um, devised and took through to completion. and She's going to tell us about everything that happened along the road. Thank you, Helen. Thank you very much. And thank you, Emily and Claire, for inviting me to speak today. It's a great honour. Um, And yeah, as Claire says, I was in your seats two years ago, pretty much two years ago today, I think. Um, And really, I wanted to because i realize this is the study design and research methods module focus more than on the research itself on the process of kind of what took me from originally having the original idea and taking that all the way through to publication and the kind of processes that that involves with all the many bumps along the road um, that that go along with that so how many people here are doing the m2 module at the moment the study design and research methods module Okay, so most people. And how many people are practising clinicians? And how many people are surgeons? Okay, all right. that's just useful for me to know in terms of what, how, I, how I structure it. So um, most of the talk is made up of pictures. I realise you've been in lectures all day, and so I wanted to try and make this a little bit more fun. Um, and also that some people probably got up really early this morning to be here, so I don't want you to to fall asleep. Um, and. Um, do interrupt me if you've got anything that isn't obvious as we go along, although there will be question time to ask me questions at the end and also at drinks afterwards if you've got anything that you want to um, to know about. Um, so first of all, just to give you a little bit bit of background about me, Um, So, as Claire said, I'm a a GP. I got to this route by doing my uh, medical training um, at both Cambridge and Oxford, and these are my lovely colleges that I was at, Um, and then did most of my clinical training at the uh, John Radcliffe Hospital here in Oxford after that, Um, and since then I've I've sort of gradually become more involved in academia and academic work along the way. And have really been involved in some very diverse projects Um, so ranging from many things started off with a project on conjunctivitis, um, sarcoidosis, um, project on breathalysers, childhood immunization, flu-like illness in children um, and then more recently I've just started a defil looking at with how we can use blood eosinophils to predict responsiveness to inhaled steroids in COPD. Um, but what I'm here to talk about today is the Speed Bumps project. Um, just here, this is a speed bump. Um, and talk about, the, as I say, the process uh, involved in, in that. So this is the finished thing. This is the article which was um, published in the BMJ, uh, coming up for two years ago now. And this is the front cover of the BMJ where it was published. It was the Christmas edition, which, for those of you who don't know the... Um, UK and the British Medical Journal is very much a kind of fun issue that's published that it's the final issue that's published before Christmas and um, often has articles in it which have a slightly, um, a fun element that you know they're, they're serious research articles but um, with something more quirky about them than the things that are published weekly. Obviously everything published day-to-day in the BMJ is very interesting but these are particularly particularly fun articles. Uh, so it really, from, from that, sort of, the week before Christmas in 2012 went a bit mad, really. And this is just a flavour of the media attention that this paper got in the week before, um, before Christmas. I mean, I know, it's, I know this paper's used a lot as a teaching exercise on the courses, and if you haven't come across it already, you probably will at some point, particularly if you do the diagnosis and screening module, which I think is great, so you should definitely do that. Um, and... There were a few different things so you know it ended up in various different newspapers all over the um, all over the internet and I got to go on a few radio shows as well um, which was which was really good fun so that's how it ended up and I'm going to go right back to the beginning now with how it began so this is Stoke Mandeville Hospital Um, Stoke Mandeville Hospital is no it's in it's in Aylesbury which is about 20 miles from here, something like that, maybe a bit closer um, and is known as a spinal rehabilitation hospital. It was the, f- the first one and it's where the first Paralympics were held um, but my attachment there was nothing quite so exciting as that. It was just a general surgery attachment in my first, first job as a doctor back in uh, 2009 and I was what's called a house officer, which is the most junior, or F1, which is the most junior grade of doctor. And everybody has to do a little bit of, um, of medicine and surgery. And so this was my surgery attachment, based pretty much in the emergency department of Stoke Mandeville Hospital, which is this delightful building here. And things really started at about 3 a.m. Um, on a wintry evening back in 2009 when, as was often the case, I would go along with my registrar, who was a more senior, um, a more senior surgeon, um, and make notes while the registrar was, was taking, the, taking the clerking, seeing the patient. And we saw a, a young girl who had been uh, admitted with tummy pain, pain on the right side of her tummy, And she, and the registrar was taking the details of the history from the patient. And then he asked her, how did you get to hospital? And she immediately said, in the car, and we went over the bumps, and it was absolutely awful. And he turned around to me and said, I don't need to ask any more questions. We're taking her straight to the operating theatre. And when I asked him about this afterwards, he said he thought that it was a classical sign for knowing whether a patient had appendicitis or not, was the fact that the patient complained of having pain when they went over the bumps on the way to hospital. And it turned out that a few of the other surgeons, when, when... I and also another colleague asked them about this. They said, oh, yeah, you know, everybody knows that. And it it wasn't everybody, but it was certainly something that was known about in um, that it was something that you could ask about that. If patients had pain on the journey, they they may well have appendicitis. And a colleague of mine, a chap called Carter, who I worked very closely with at the time, he, he actually had the brainchild for this. I can't take credit for having the idea of actually of, of setting it up and, and um, the idea of, of where we could publish it. And he said, I, don't, I bet there's no evidence on that. I, I bet that would make an, a really good article for the Christmas BMJ. And so at that point we decided, great, let's let's aim, let's go for that, let's aim for the Christmas BMJ. Um, and so from from that, um, the study the study was born really. Um, so that was that was the kind of initial initial starting point. Um, I realised that my audience isn't entirely from the UK. Um, is it, it? Where's the furthest place that anybody's from? US. US. Anybody beat US? I think you do have speed bumps in the US but I think they might be called speed humps. They are called speed bumps as well, okay. That was one of the criticisms we got from the BMJ was that not everybody would know what speed bumps were, so we had to put a very detailed definition in, um, which is a little bit bizarre, but there we go. Um, So speed bumps are devices, I suppose, that are put in the road to slow traffic, and there is evidence that they are associated with a reduction in child deaths uh, and that they slow traffic down um but they are much hated by drivers as the drivers amongst you will realize and also because i realize not everybody is a clinician i just wanted to say a little bit about appendicitis i think appendicitis is one of those conditions that it's very common people do have a bit of a general knowledge about and i don't think you really need to know much more than the general knowledge that you would have anyway but your appendix is um, part of the guts it's located here and it can occasionally uh, get inflamed and when it gets inflamed that's called appendicitis. And the the characteristic symptoms that it gives you is pain on the right side of your tummy, characteristically pain, which actually starts in the middle part of your tummy and then goes to the right-hand side a little bit later on in the course. um, And that you can get pain when doctors assess somebody who might have appendicitis, you get pain in that area. And then you can also have something called rebound tenderness, which is when you press in and then take your hand off, it's more painful when you remove your hand. So that's another test that doctors and surgeons sometimes use. It also gives you nausea and loss of appetite. And the definitive treatment traditionally has been an appendicectomy, an operation to remove the appendix, which can be done either by an open route or more commonly now by keyhole surgery. But actually, um, there is also some evidence now for treating particularly mild cases of appendicitis with antibiotics rather than, um, rather than with, with surgery. Um, so I think that's probably all I'm going to say about the details of appendicitis. Oh, no, I was going to say a little bit more about it, which is that, as you know, it's common. Um, it's important not to miss it because if you, um, if you miss it, it can lead to perforation that can cause infection in the tummy and, you know, um, Sepsis can potentially be very serious indeed. But there is also a degree of overdiagnosis and there's associated morbidity with overdiagnosis as well. And in fact, there's a negative appendisectomy rate of five to 42% in the literature. Uh, So that means that of those that are removed, um, some of them won't actually, when you look at them under the microscope, show signs of inflammation. And that's that looking at the appendix under the microscope is often seen as the gold standard test for whether there is an appendicitis. And as I say, sometimes it's classical and sometimes everybody has every sign in the textbook, but sometimes it's not quite so easy to diagnose. Um, and so you, there are scoring systems which exist, which use a combination of history, examination and lab findings. And also more now, um, things like CT and ultrasound as well to, um, to give more detail about that. Is that all right from the surgeon's perspectives? Have I said anything they disagree with? There, I realise I'm a GP talking about surgery, which puts me on slightly rocky territory, but there we go. Um, okay, so the question that we, um, that we came up with um, of how good are speed bumps at diagnosing appendicitis. So I think this week you've, and in the first module, you would have been talking about PICOs, and I'm not sure quite how far you've got in terms of diagnostic accuracy studies, but they can be, um, instead of looking at a PICO, you can look at a PIRTO, P-I-R-T instead. So instead of, having the, um, instead of having the comparison and the outcome, instead you have the patients or participants exactly the same, the index test, the reference test, and then the target condition. And then you use that, you compare the results of the index test and the reference standard um, to, to get outcomes such as sensitivity and specificity. Is that something that people have come across before as a concept? Lots of nods, good. Okay. So. In terms of our research question we looked at our P was patients with possible appendicitis, the index test pain over speed bumps and that was a worsening of pain from baseline so lots of these patients would be in pain already but it was the idea that their pain would get worse when they went over the bump. The reference standard as I said the gold standard test looking at the appendix under the microscope and seeing what it looks like is appendicitis on histology and the target condition, obviously, acute appendicitis. So we set up a surgical audit to answer this question. So we looked at all the patients who'd been referred to the surgical take, either um, referred by their general practitioner, their GP, or that had presented directly to the emergency department over a six-week period between April and June 2009 and I was one of the junior doctors so it was quite easy to get other doctors to fill in a clerking performer or just to write in the notes as part of their clerking. As I say many people were asking about speed bumps anyway so I just encouraged them to specifically write it down so that they could um, audit it and to fill in an audit performer. And then um, me and a colleague followed these patients through their admission to see what the outcome was, either whether they were discharged straight home, whether they were taken to theatre, and if they were taken to theatre, did they have their appendix removed? And if they did, when they looked, then looked at that under the microscope, did that then confirm appendicitis or not? And it was only if that confirmed appendicitis that they counted as a positive result. Um, And these histology details uh, were initially looked at by me and then the findings were corroborated by a surgeon who was blinded to all the clinical details um, because obviously that that would be quite important to avoid any um, observer bias because I obviously did know the clinical details myself and so it would be possible that I'd be swayed in my result by that. And the doctors were very obliging, lots of people filled them in during this period and uh, we included 32 patients and all of them had travelled over speed bumps, which was because there was a speed bump on the entry to the hospital site, which was very convenient. So this is the uh, audit form that we used. Um, I'm not going to go through it in detail, but it was just to ask the patients um, or or to ask the doctor that was seeing the patients to particularly make sure they recorded these details. They often would be recording them anyway, as I said, that these elements of history and examination form up various scores. And there's one particularly called the Alvarado score that we were using at Stoke Mandeville Hospital at that time. So they were often recording all these details. And then they were particularly recording how the patient had given the information, so whether they had volunteered that the journey was painful or whether they had to be asked directly what was the journey like and whether they had to be asked directly about speed bumps. And the idea was that we could stratify how good the diagnostic test was in relation to how, strong they, how strongly they volunteered at the pain in the end with a sample of only 32, the different number of boxes meant that it was, it was impossible to do that. But that, that was the aim anyway with this. So I said I'd talk about a number of bumps along the way. Does anybody, particularly anybody local to here, know where this is? No, it's uh, Watlington Hill, which is part of the Chilterns. It's a very pretty area if you ever get to do any exploring while you're down here. Um, and I used to run, um, I used to be a brownie leader and run brown, this is related, I promise. I used to run brownies uh, down in Watlington. And one evening, about two weeks before my wedding, uh, we were doing a campfire on this, on this white mark. It was a good place to have campfires with the brownies. And we all parked our cars just outside um, along, the, along the roadside. And this was my car back then he was called luke and sadly he's not with me anymore Um, but um, he was a very old car but didn't have a great security mechanism you can probably tell where the story's going Um, at the time i was collecting all the appendicitis data on these paper audit performers and they didn't have any patient details on them but they did have the entirety of the data that was being collected and at the end of the at the end of having finished recruiting with all 32 uh, performers in my car boot uh, sadly Luke was broken into while we were at the um, while we were at having the brownie campfire and um, i went back to the car and obviously my handbag had gone my wallet my phone Um, my driving license, and I didn't care about the fact that I'd have to replace all this two weeks before my wedding and honeymoon. All I cared about was the fact that they'd taken the appendicitis data, (laughs) um, which, you know, I think the brownies and the brownie mums were like, why is she not worried about the money? She's worried about a load of sheets of paper. Um, But um, for some reason, which I don't completely understand now, instead of doing the sensible thing and calling the police, I decided to give chase to the, um, <laughs> to the guys who'd broken into the car. The other, the other brownie, the mums of the brownies said that there was a place about five miles away where dodgy things happened in the Watling, so Watlington's a very nice, well-to-do area in the Chilterns, um, and that this was an, ar- an area where dodgy things happened, and so they suggested that this might be a good place to head. So at dusk um, on this particular evening, I headed to this, it's a little minor road, just by junction 6 of the M40. So I'd suggest that you don't go down there because it's not a particularly nice place to go, particularly late at night. But as I drove down this little lane, I happened to notice in the hedgerow the Buckinghamshire Hospital Trust antibiotic guidelines which were on this colourful, you know, this colourful thing, so it meant they were particularly easy to see. And so I stopped and then as I drove along, I gradually saw more and more things that had been the contents of my wallet until I got to the dead end at the bottom of the road. And there wasn't anybody, you know, I think by that stage they'd, they'd gone by the time it had taken me to get all my stuff together and follow them. Um, but in an area of bushes, a little walk away from the road, I found my bag with all the appendicitis data still in it which I think is pretty incredible, really. Um, so that is this. If, if, that, if I hadn't managed to find the stuff, this probably would have never continued. I think I probably would have just said, oh, well, it wasn't meant to be. But anyway, the learning point from that bump is don't leave valuables in your car boot and always keep copies of data. So there we go. Um, diagnostic accuracy studies. Um, I suspect that you've come across this before. Um, a table, a two by two table looking comparing index tests to reference tests and using that information to calculate first of all sensitivity and specificity and then positive predictive value and negative predictive value. If not, I think you'll do it with Sue later in the week. Is it Sue that's doing it? Yeah. Um, and you may well use this paper as an example. Um, and so we did that. And this is the results, so you can see that this shows, this positive column here shows all of those who were, had a confirmed diagnosis of appendicitis. So 9 out of 11 people and that gave a sensitivity of 82% and then the specificity, which is the the number of true, um, true negatives over the total in this column, gives the specificity. And so you can see that this showed that the test had a relatively good sensitivity and a slightly less good specificity. One of the major problems though is these confidence intervals that our sample size of 32 meant that we had incredibly wide confidence intervals so ranging from 48 so a pretty poor test in terms of sensitivity all the way up to 98 percent which would be a fantastic test in terms of in terms of sensitivity but we did show even with these results with the the estimate as we as we had them um, that this was comparable to or better than other diagnostic tests used in appendicitis diagnosis so comparing it to things like the migration of pain or rebound tenderness or nausea and vomiting this looked better so this made us think you know this is this is obviously you know this backs up what we thought in that it is a fairly decent um, decent test so we presented it to the surgical audit meeting at Stoke Mandeville Hospital and planned to submit it um, for publication. And then nothing happened for two years. So <laughs> this is the second bump, um, which is that just basically with these things, it's just so easy for other things in life to take over, particularly if you don't have anybody to prompt you and say, get on with this, you know, it's been six months and I've not heard anything from you and the problem with this project is that there wasn't really anybody like that it was kind of us that had started it and so um, nothing more happened so I did lots more lots more medical jobs both the John Radcliffe and the Churchill bought a house got married had very busy on-call rotors did um, various medical exams and it was only when I then came for my interviews for my jeep for the GP Academic Clinical Fellowships, that I think they asked at the interview something like, describe a project that you've done. And I just thought, well, I'll mention the speed bumps one. And the interview panel were really excited by it. They thought, they said, oh, that's fantastic. You know, have you not written this up for publication? It's, it's wonderful. And I think I was really surprised that somebody outside of, you know, me who'd done the study and, you know, surgeons would be interested in it. So when I started my, um, my ACF and I had a little bit of academic time to do something, I said to my supervisor, Anthony Harnden, um, you know, what do you think about this? And he was equally very, very excited and said, we should, you know, yes, you should definitely, definitely write this up. Um, and submitting it to Christmas BMJ sounds like a fantastic idea. Um, so we went for it. Um, oh, the, the learning point is don't let good potential projects fall to the wayside. Um, so we set about assembling a team of co-authors to write to submit to the BMJ. So the surgical colleague that I had been involved in it in the beginning um, was now a radiology trainee, but wanted to um, but wanted to stay um, stay involved um, here. And we involved a consultant surgeon, so as to have a, a sort of content expert on the team. Uh, found a medical statistician. By wandering around the department, and I've done a lot of work with Richard Stevens, who will be talking to you later in the uh, later in the course. Um, I've done a lot of work with him since, and actually, the reason I started working uh, working with him was that he was the only statistician around on the day that Anthony Harnden and I happened to be wandering around the t- around the department looking for some help with camp, with calculating confidence intervals so that's the way that's the way to get get um, involved in things I guess um, and he had the unenviable task of trying to retrospectively calculate something resembling a sample size calculation for 32 patients which I think is pretty impossible to be honest with hindsight um, but he did a, a really good job of having a go um, and then also Anthony Harden stayed involved as a, as a sort of GP primary care research expertise person. The third bump, when we came to submit, there's a a question on when you try and submit any research, was ethical approval obtained and if not, why not? So some of you might have noticed that when we had done this originally, we'd called this an audit and we very much thought of it as an audit. This was something that lots of the doctors in the hospital were doing already and we were just trying to find out whether it linked to, um, whether it, you know, what the diagnostic accuracy was and we weren't doing anything that kind of involved the patients directly. However, I, the Research ethics committees didn't necessarily agree with our logic on that, and their guidance is very clear that any research proposal involving patients and users of the NHS um, should go through ethics should go through ethical approval. There, are, there are kind of get-out. Um, things in, in terms of surveys and service improvement and ways that you could not get ethics. And we actually, I have a friend who's a medical lawyer and we consulted her because she sits on lots of ethics committees and she did think it very much sat on the borderline um, and that it wasn't a problem to submit it. You know, clearly we hadn't done anything morally wrong. We hadn't been you know, doing stuff to patients without their consent, but that probably it would be something which, with, you know, with hindsight, it would have been better to get ethical approval. So on the wording for submission, we, we wrote the study protocol was reviewed by a senior member of the Buckinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust who ruled that the study was a survey and under NHS research governance arrangements did not require formal ethical approval. Now we never got picked up on that, but I do wonder if it had got further at that stage, um, we, whether it might have, co- have caused a problem when it came to publication. So my learning point from that was always check ethical approval situation before embarking on any project. And it's kind of made me a little bit obsessional about it with subsequent projects of just making absolutely sure that I've been through all the hoops and that I've got stuff in writing from the, from the people that be to absolutely make, make sure that I don't need to get ethical approval. However, it was not to be. I heard on the 6th of October 2011, thank you for sending us this paper. We sent it for, for peer review, but we're sorry to say that we cannot publish it in the BMJ at this time. Now, it would, be, would have been easy to think of this as the mother of all speed bumps. I think this must be in the States. Um, but we didn't. The, the reasons for rejection were kind of predictable, and I don't remember being bitterly disappointed because I think I was sort of half expecting it Um, They said, we didn't have any specific criticism of the design or methods. The main problem is the small sample size, which I think, you know, anybody looking at this could say, well, what did you expect? It wasn't going to get into the BMJ with a sample size of 32 patients. Um, But they said, we suggest that you might gather more data prospectively, perhaps collaborating with clinicians from another centre to build up a bigger sample so that a future analysis might not suffer from being underpowered. If you can do this, we may be interested in seeing a resubmission for next year's Christmas BMJ. So I'm sure that some people would have seen that and said, oh, well, that's, you know, it's, that's only in a year's time. This was on the 6th of, 6th of October 2011 and getting a whole study together in time for December 2012 or in time for the submission deadline, September 2012, that that might be it. A bit impossible but I think I saw it as a challenge and the other people saw it as a challenge because these were the comments that I immediately had back by return from Anthony and Richard. Anthony said comments are excellent let's discuss extending the study with prior ethics approval that was because of the whole problem that we'd had with the ethics and aim for excellence BMJ 2012 we may even be able to secure a small grant and Richard said, "This looks like a good opportunity to seek funding and do the study on a larger scale. You could be really onto something here." So I felt like, from the rest of my team, that there was lots of positive feeling about it, and so I thought, "Let's go for it." So I think I've put a question mark by the fourth bump because I think actually it wasn't so much as a bump as an opportunity. So I think seeing opportunity and failure, and I think nobody gets anywhere without having failures along the way. And you know, when this did come out in Christmas, you know, in Christmas BMJ, everyone was you know kind of like wow this is amazing but actually it really wasn't a completely smooth pathway and you know the fact that it didn't get in the year before was very much a you know major thing along the way. So as I say a new challenge first of all we had to redesign the study to take account of the criticisms that we'd had that we'd had and things that we would have wanted to change anyway doing it on a larger scale going through ethical approval, and I'd never done a clinical study before. So suddenly go, coming across all these ridiculous number of acronyms that you have to get your head round when designing a study, and I ha- only had about a month in which to get my head round all of it. So I did my GCP training, which is good clinical practice, um, filled in the IRAS form. I don't even know what that stands for. Some sort of form you fill in. Um, the, um, um, it takes ages, so yeah leave more than a month to do it. Um, the, there's the Research Ethics Committee, um, the Local Trust Research and Development. There's a site-specific form that needs to be filled in. You also need to get sponsorship from the university that provide kind of legal cover and um, um, general support from a university point of view. That's clinical trials and research governance. Um, and then PR is the, um, it, it stands for proportionate, proportionate Review, I think, And which was something that had just come in a few weeks before, which was really handy and was a two week fast track process for getting things through ethical approval. Because I think for many things it does take several months. And this was part of a scheme to recognise that for studies that really weren't too controversial, we could, um, you know, it could go through a lot more quickly. Um, we had to design a new protocol, come up with study packs, consent forms, think about funding. In the end, we didn't actually get any funding. Everybody did it through goodwill and wanting to be involved in the study. Um, and I got a little bit of funding to pay for the cost of printing all the consent forms um, from an organisation called UKAGS, which is um, the programme that funds the Oxford ACFs. Had to recruit staff, because obviously I was no longer working at Stoke Mandeville Hospital and I didn't have any contacts there anymore. Um, have the other people that we needed on the team so um, we asked Richard to still be involved as as the statistician um, and we were aware that we needed somebody to actually do the work so to get a research assistant as well but without having anything to pay that research assistant with which was a little bit interesting. Um, We had to get a review of the protocol and Dan Lasserson and Dick Mayon-White did um, a review of the protocol for us which was really helpful and we really improved it as a result of getting their input. And then we had to recruit a lot more patients compared to previously to try, and get through, to try and get through the process in order to then submit in time for the Christmas BMJ the year after. So the study redesign, this time we had some pilot data to go on for the fir- from the first, um, the first study that we've done. Um, Although, because of the wide confidence intervals, it again wasn't completely perfect but Richard came up with a great um, sample size calculation such that we could say that we needed to recruit between 100 and 150 patients to the study and that that was to to show a significant difference in likelihood ratio um, compared to rebound tenderness so that we were going to outperform rebound tenderness. That was the goal. This time we were going to get written consent from patients and we couldn't get, we couldn't ask the doctors on the wards to actually take consent because otherwise they would have all had to have gone through good clinical practice training and things like that. So we wanted it to be an entirely written process so that the patients could read all the information and sort of effectively consent themselves, which is fine for a low intervention study. We wanted to standardise the index test, so we designed a questionnaire that they had to complete within 12 hours of their arrival in the hospital. And that was just because we were worried that a longer time than that and there'd be a degree of recall bias. Um, And then we also arranged a telephone follow-up after discharge for those without appendicitis. And the reason for that was because there was the possibility that patients might have been readmitted elsewhere with appendicitis that we didn't know about in in that hospital because obviously we only had, rec- had access to the medical records within the hospital. So I actually brought along um, uh, some of the study paperwork because I'm aware that not everybody's perhaps, you know, been through study recruitment. So if you do want to either pass this around or come and have a look afterwards, then I'm very happy for you, know, have a leaf, have a leaf through it. Um, so it, it's made up of um, participant information sheets, um, which patients had a read of beforehand a consent form, the patient questionnaire where we asked various details about their demographics, about their symptoms, and then quite a lot of detail about their pain, whether they were in pain already, whether the pain got worse when it went over a bump, and also how they'd, got to the, how they'd got to the hospital. Plus getting their contact details just for the purposes of, of calling, them, calling them afterwards. We asked the doctors to complete a data collection form, as it happened none of the doctors actually filled in the data collection form but the research assistant uh, filled this in afterwards. And then recruitment guidance for the clinical staff on the ward. So Christmas 2011, I've tried to give a slightly Christmas flavour to this given that it's for the 1st of December, Um, I was saying to Claire beforehand that looking back in preparation for this talk I went back through my emails in relation to speed bumps which I hadn't looked at in over a year and the amount of email correspondence that Went, went around, and at this time I was doing a really busy paediatrics job, and so I must have been. You know, lots of them were sort of sent at three or four a.m. And looking back, I think, gosh, where on earth did I get the energy from to do all of to do all of that at the time? But this was a. I actually sent all the. Um, documents off to the university CTRG, which was the first stage of getting ethics approval on Christmas day at seven forty eight pm, which I was just amazed at, looking back at that, I thinking, what on earth was I doing on Christmas day sending <laughs> sending ethics documents? But I think what happened was that we decided to delay Christmas because I was in the middle of a horrible set of nights um, and celebrated Christmas several days later when I came off night. So I'm trying to think that I wasn't being too overly keen, and that actually it did it did make sense. Um, but part of getting this together so quickly was the fact that um, part, was the fact that I had a really great team that were able to um, that you know replied to emails within a few minutes of me sending them and were willing to go to great lengths to get all this ethical stuff in so that we could start recruitment as soon as possible. So within about six weeks of having had the rejection we'd already got all the documents ready for sending out to ethics which you know looking back on it was pretty phenomenal that we managed to do that because now you know the pace of research often does go a lot slower than that and people don't reply to your emails for 10 days and things like that and nobody did that everybody was just really quick and realized that to get this going and to make a go of this we needed to be really quick really prompt and a particular example of that, the reason I've got a map of Africa, which might seem rather odd, um, is that at the time when I submitted to ethics, um, they needed to have hard copy signatures or a, a real life signature within 24 hours of me submitting the forms. And it happened that that coincided with Anthony Harndam being in Uganda, Nigel, who was the, the um, lead that I had Um, the surgeon who I'd recruited in Stoke Mandeville to lead the study kind of on the ground. He was a senior house officer then. Um, He was in Egypt. And then the other surgeon was somewhere in Europe. And they were all great. They went to the business centres at their hotels. They scanned in their signatures. And they just went to great lengths to kind of sort that out for me. And I just, you know, I think that was absolutely amazing. And so, you know, the hard work and dedication from all the team really, you know, made this happen. You know, I did work hard on it, but it really, you know, it it was really a team effort. So in February 2012, recruitment started. We got ethical approval through on the 25th of January, got all the documents printed within a few days and I had the printing company primed to get it all done as quickly as possible. And the idea was to get this so that it was all ready so that we could start recruitment at Doctor Changeover at the beginning of February because for those of you that don't know, Doctors Changeover on Wednesdays, which is a little odd. Um, and the people who were starting the six month jobs it meant that we could catch them right at the beginning and that unfortunately coincided with snow um, and I had to I, I met with Nigel who as I say is the guy who was running the study on the ground um, halfway between Aylesbury and Oxford and both of us braved the snow and I met him at about 11 o'clock at night with all the roads closed closed due to snow just to get all these study packs out to Stoke Mandeville in time for um, for the new doctors starting but we did it I always like to put pictures of cats in my presentations. Uh, So these are my cats, Agnes and Pippa. And this was the first time they'd ever experienced the snow, I think. This is in our garden. And I'm not sure quite what they thought of it. But there we go. So the fifth bump, I think this is the final bump. Um, So the first four weeks of the study, we sadly only recruited 10 patients, which was rather a blow given that in the pilot or the audit, whatever you want to call it, we'd recruited 32 patients in six weeks. So this was quite a lot slower. And the reasons for this were that, um, you know, I was, I was probably the most enthusiastic and the keenest and I was based in Oxford, um, Nigel, who was the SHO running the study, was based in High Wycombe. Um, all the other study staff were based in High Wycombe or Oxford or, or elsewhere. Um, and we had recruited, we had recruited a research assistant who was somebody who said that they were keen to be involved and we'd said, you know, you can be a co-author if you're the re- researcher. but, you know, he was just a, a bit un, unreliable, really. Um, you know, obviously, it's very busy when you have, you know, hospital rotors, but it just didn't have the kind of impetus to really get involved and, you know, go after work and fill in forms and encourage other people to recruit, which was what we really, really needed. And the F1s, the the house officers that we wanted to go up to patients and say, there's this study going on, I won't tell you much about it, but here's a study pack for you to read about and see if you want to fill it in. They just weren't really doing that. We tried to give them, you know, we said that they could keep the pen if they wanted afterwards, which... (laughs) You know, we th- we, I thought that was great, you know, you're always looking for a pen. And in fact, we, I, I kept topping up the pens that we had in the sort of study box that we kept in the emergency department. And I mean, we recruited in the end 101 patients, but the number of pens I'd got through was about three times that. Mm-hmm. So I think people were just using it for the whole emergency department must have been using this box as a source of pens um, without actually recruiting patients, which wasn't the idea. But never mind, if I can have given pens to St. Mandeville Hospital, then that's great. Um, There was also one of the other major problems was that in the meantime, in the sort of intervening two years, there'd been a redevelopment of the hospital site, so that the speed bump, which guaranteed that everybody went over a speed bump, (laughs) was no longer there, which was really, really sad. So it meant that we'd gone from 100% of patients having gone over a speed bump to only about two-thirds of patients, because Stoke Mandeville's in quite a residential area in Aylesbury, so still most patients had gone over a speed bump, but not all of them, which, as I say, is just absolutely tragic. Um, how did we get around that? We recruited a new fantastic research assistant called Diala, who was just wonderful. She just had so much enthusiasm and she went after work each day and um, recruited patients. She, you know, she, yeah, she's the reason that the study was successful. Um, The uh, PI, Nigel, called from Wickham every day to the on-call staff because Stoke Mandeville and Wickham are on separate sites, which is a little bit inconvenient, and so it meant that he was actually based on the other site most of the time. We got the consultant, who was meant to be kind of overseeing the study, to send repeated emails to junior staff saying this is absolutely compulsory. We applied for a, a major amendment from the Ethics committee to increase the time window of recruitment to 24 hours i thought this would be a minor amendment but it had to go back through the ethics ethics but luckily we didn't have to stop recruitment while we were getting that amendment um so that increased to 24 hours Um, and we um looked at other ways to increase recruitment as well so things like chocolates certificates for participation even more pens you know um and so I think my learning point here is that the local staff really have to be on board and interested and you have to you know, think about paying people to take part in your study or they have to have some sort of personal gain to want to do it. And we reached our recruitment target in July 2012. This is my uh, data entry spreadsheet which was very colourful and I was very proud of it. I don't think I've done such a colourful data entry spreadsheet since. Um, so the final decisions after we'd gathered all the data were Chasing up the histology, which there's a kind of month lag on getting that, which was a bit of an issue given that we were so tight to the publication deadline. Deciding on how we were going to deal with things like patients that had said they were unsure about, about whether they'd gone over speed bumps. Patients who'd been treated with antibiotics instead. One of the other issues was that everybody was on holiday at the time that we were trying to write it up. So I think, you know, if you the deadline for submitting for Christmas BMJ was the 14th of September which meant that trying to write it up during August and August and beginning part of September was a bit of a nightmare. So this is a picture of Castle Drogo which is in Devon and is where I was madly trying to get a wi-fi connection to do some statistical analysis and correspond with Richard about things which was a bit of a challenge. So our results, and I'm really not going to talk very much about the results because you, you know you can read it in the paper and I wanted to focus on the process rather than the actual results, but as I say, we recruited 101 patients, Um, 43 of them had confirmed appendicitis, which gave a negative appendectomy rate of 20%, which is about average, and 68, so about two-thirds, had travelled over speed bumps, and we excluded four of them. These are the results. So, as you can see, the two-by-two table again, 33 out of 34 patients uh, who were positive for appendicitis uh, had been Um, were also positive for speed bumps. So that gave us a sensitivity of 97%. And what that means is that when a test has a really high sensitivity, it means that it's a really good rule out test. So that means that if if you don't have pain when you go over speed bumps, um, it means it's very unlikely that you will have appendicitis. The specificity, however, was really low. That's what you'd expect and is because the majority of patients did have pain when they went over bumps. Most patients who were pain, in pain anyway said yes, the bumps are more painful. So it wasn't very specific and actually lots of the patients who had pain went on to, um, went on to be diagnosed with something else, either an, another serious abdominal problem or didn't, you know, didn't have anything wrong with them at all. And when we compared the um, speed bumps to uh, other diagnostic variables, we found that we had set out to prove what we wanted to which is that the sensitivity for the pain over speed bumps was better than these three other sensitivities so migratory pain nausea or vomiting and rebound tenderness and also in terms of negative likelihood ratio it was a better negative likelihood ratio than for all these things so in terms of proving that it's making it less likely that you have appendicitis if you don't have that sign and it was accepted. So we submitted and we then had a very nice email back saying we would please say we would like to publish the paper in the Christmas BMJ. We had quite a lot of, um, they had quite a lot of comments and things they wanted to add detail on. So making it more suitable for the US audience, as I said, some extra sensitivity analyses. Um, more details in the methods and we'd also got a comment at the end which we thought was quite amusing for Christmas BMJ saying um, that further studies would involve seeing if there was a difference between male and female drivers and we you know we thought this BM- Christmas BMJ they'll go for it but they we had several terse comments back saying please remove the comment about male and female drivers it is unnecessary and not related to the research and we were kind of like yes but that's the point but anyway they I I think our humour didn't quite match their humour. And the reason for the picture of Oxford Crown Crown Court um, is that I was on jury duty at the time um, and so was trying to do all these um, re-editing at the same time as trying to decide whether somebody was guilty of blackmail or not. Um, And after after we'd sent in the revised comments we then had a lovely email back saying we are very pleased to be able to publish it this year which was really exciting. So this is Christmas 2012, uh, when, as I say, it all went um, it all went very, very chaotic. So I was doing the M22 course two years ago, and during. Um, during the, the course, that was when I heard that they wanted to make a podcast and so I had loads of feedback from everyone else on the course about how we could write this podcast and, you know, particularly from the surgeons in the course, you, you know, how we could make it relevant to lots of different people and recruited some, some willing volunteers, um, particularly from the department, to be in the, in the podcast. And so we made that a week or so later. Um, they they press released it, and unfortunately the timing of the press release was when I had a full day in GP surgery. Um, so the receptionists were put on guard to put any reporters through, you know, to put them on hold while I finish with my patient next with my patient, and then I try and slot them in between patients and things. So again, that's something that if that if you ever do anything which is press released, make sure you clear the day after it's going to be press released because it's not good to be have a full surgery full of patients. But the university media team and the department media team were absolutely great. And then I was on several radio shows, as I mentioned. One of them I had to come up with a Christmas joke and I managed to put it on Facebook saying, does anyone have a joke? And I even managed to find an appendicitis related joke, which was really good. Um, and there were two sort of good um, uh, podcast I'm not going to play you th- so the, the BMJ as I say made a podcast which features several people in the department um, and is very um, I think is good it doesn't just feature me it features lots of other people as well and is very um, very funny I'm just going to pay you the Naked Scientists one just to give you a flavour of the sort of things that I um, had to talk alongside in the run up to Christmas Hello, happy Christmas, and welcome to the final episode of The Naked Scientists of 2012. It's Chris Smith, Dave Ansell, and Kat Arnie here with you. And to celebrate this festive period, we're going to be taking a look at the lighter side of science this week, including finding out why speed bumps are the best way to diagnose appendicitis, potentially. Also, uh, why reindeer have red noses. The guy we'll speak to has had these animals on treadmills to find out. This is a real physiology experiment. And we'll be meeting Cliff, the dog that can sniff for C-diff, cat. We also need you to send in your science questions for us. to That's all I'll play. But it, <laughs> it was kind of, it was this bizarre thing, because there was a kind of serious aspect to our research in that this is a sign that you can use in practice. But because it came out in the week before Christmas, it was, you, you know, there were lots, lots of things like the Christmas joke and everywhere that it was it was presented. It was presented as alongside this other article, which was how Rudolph has his red nose, which was just quite, quite funny. Um, So I think that's all I'm specifically going to say. I've got a huge list of acknowledgements that I'm not going to go through specifically. Um, But, you know, as I said before, it really, really very much a team effort. And although I did work hard, you know, everybody else played a really key role and I couldn't have done it without everybody else helping me, helping me along. Um, And lastly, I just wanted to thank my poor, long suffering husband, Michael, This is a picture of him on the 23rd of December 2012 which was when I had promised to make a batch of sausage rolls for 20 people and unfortunately I wasn't able to do it because of all the press release stuff and I ended up having to go on the Naked Scientist show while at the time of making the sausage rolls and so this is him um, downstairs in the kitchen Making very meticulously making sausage rolls because I think the um, I think there was a requ- I think you had to make them two and a half centimetres or an inch thick or something and while normal people would just have guessed it he did it all with a tape measure um, but um, anyway that's that's him while I was on the um, while I was on the radio um, and so yeah I think that's all I had to say and Merry Christmas.